Well, I trust that uh, we're ready to hear and delight in God's Word. The title of this morning's message is Worlds Apart. And uh, there is handouts, as the pastor said, and all of the uh, scriptures that I'll be, I'll be quoting, at least the references, are on those, uh, those handouts. So let's a- ask God now to bless his word to our hearts. Gracious Lord, help us now as we seek to know and love you better through your word. And grant us the power, your power and willingness to apply these words uh, to our life, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a, a convicting message for sure. It's a, it's a warning passage, really. And in fact, the, the passage this afternoon is also a warning passage uh, as well. Our text is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Please listen carefully as we read God's holy word. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in, in this text, the Apostle John uh, gives us a, a warning. It is, it is a dire warning. It could not possibly be more, more serious than it is. It's a warning that should grab our attention. It is a call to a single, wholehearted devotion to God. And it calls us to search our souls and to ask this very important question. Am I loving the world and the things in this world? That's what John is asking us today. So this passage reveals our Heavenly Father's concern for our safety. You think about a child that might be stepping on into traffic and we, we want to grab that child and take it away. Well, the Heavenly Father is concerned for our safety as well. Uh, our Father warns us of the danger of loving this fallen world. Well, as children, we knew when our parents were about to say something that was very serious, looking straight into our eyes with that serious, penetrating stare, we heard those attention-getting words. You need to sit up straight and listen. (laughs) And some of you parents will probably say those very words to your children today. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying just that to us. Many passages call us to a, to a singular devotion to God as well. We think of Joshua's call to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus tells us what that devotion looks like. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the Apostle Paul tells us, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. Excuse me. Sure, I had that somewhere. Yeah. So along with this text, we're going to be looking at some, some key passages in this letter uh, of John. 
throughout, and, and hopefully that gives us a better, a better context for our, our passage. So let's begin by looking at, at John's letter. Well, it was written some 50 years after the resurrection of Christ, and it was written to the church at Ephesus, as well as the surrounding cities and quite possibly uh, the other six cities of the book of Revelation that, that John wrote. And so, what are the reasons that this aged apostle wrote these five chapters? Well, he lists several. Right out of the gate, First John uh, 1.4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In 1 John 2, 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In my favorite, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's really what John is driving at in this letter. He wants, he wants to assure his listeners that they have eternal life. We'll get to that a little bit later. But for the most part, this letter was written to bring comfort and assurance to God's people. I'm sorry, I think I just missed a whole page there. Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> for the most part, this letter was indeed written to bring comfort and assurance, assurance to God's people. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce comments, John is writing to lead those who are ready to believe to a deeper understanding of the faith and to confidence in that which they already possess. So just before bringing this dire warning to not love this fallen world, John first brings comfort and assurance. And just, just preceding this dire warning in 1 John 2, 12-14, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, as in every church, there are some who need to be comforted, and there are some who need to be discomforted. There are some who need to be assured of their salvation, and some need to be assured that they are definitely are not, are not saved, and therefore need to, to call out to Christ and turn from their sins and turn to Christ. So John addresses both both of those needs in this, in this letter. In our desire to live holy lives, we are met with those three persistent enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In our text, we see the world and the flesh, but no devil. But of course, we just back up to verse 14, and we see the devil as well. John praises those young men saying that they have overcome the evil one. And again, John writes in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John counters these three powerful foes 
with the comfort of having the almighty power of God on our side. In 1 John 4, 4, we read, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John brings even more comfort when he reminds us that our born-again faith will ultimately overcome uh, this fallen world. First John 5, 4 and 5, he writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our, our faith is going to ultimately overcome. And those are really good things to remember when we are in the heat of the battle. The power is on our side. It's on our side. It's not on the, it's not on the side uh, of evil. Well, we may feel at times that we are outnumbered, like those, are, those foes are just too strong for us. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are in a war that is going to end in their defeat. That final victory is indeed ours. So no doubt this under-shepherd remembers the comforting and assuring words of his great shepherd. Uh, we think of Jesus, that uh, Jesus ends his lengthy farewell uh, discourse by comforting his disciples with these comforting words. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, because Christ overcame the world, we are not in bondage to the world, the flesh, or the devil. That, belo that bondage belongs to an unbelieving world. It does not belong to God's people. But before we can have this confident assurance of our salvation... John presents three tests that you and I must pass. How does that grab your attention? <laughs> I've never been too good at, good at uh, tests, but these are three tests, and the first test is the test of obedience. In fact, what I might say here is that John, John's letter is, is, is... Commentators really bemoan John's letter because he doesn't write in a linear fashion. It's... He'll start one place and, and, and pick up later on and pick up. So you're going to see these three tests throughout these five chapters of John. But I've confined it to just the second chapter of John. I've got three texts there I think that are, are going to be helpful. And so those three tests, the first test is the test of obedience. And that is in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And I will read that. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The second test is the test of love. We find that test in, in 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother uh, in the, 
love his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause of stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's interesting, one one commentator remarks that in these five chapters of John, the word love or, or derivative of the word love is mentioned 51 times. That's about that's about 10 occurrences in every chapter of 1 John. And the thing is, every one of those, every one of those words love is used in a positive way, except for one, our text. Do not love the world. That's the only negative use of the word love that we have. So the third test is a, a, is a doctrinal test. It specifically has to do with the incarnation. The incarnation teaches that Jesus is one person with two natures. In his deity, he is fully God. In his humanity, he is fully human. And that test is found in 1 John 2, 22-24. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Well, a little bit of explaining needs to be done here. Uh, John isn't specifically talking about, about people who are denying that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ that was to come from the Old Testament. The Antichrist that Jesus that, that, that denies Jesus has a real flesh and blood body. That's what's going on here. It's a denial. People are coming in and saying, yeah, this he didn't really have a flesh and blood body. So that's why John begins his letter by assuring his readers that he has heard Jesus, that he has seen Jesus, and he has touched Jesus. He assures them three years of walking with Jesus would leave no doubt in John's mind. And that's why John begins his letter by, by assuring uh, his readers this. Three years of walking with him. In his second epistle, John makes it clear what the Antichrist is teaching. Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So that's what John is really talking about here. It is hard to imagine uh, anyone more qualified than to talk about the Incarnation than the Apostle John. We know in this letter that he vigorously defends the humanity of Christ. But it was this very same Apostle who said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This man knows what the Incarnation is all about. So who were these antichrists? Some speculate that there were it was incipient Gnosticism. There was a couple of strains going around, Corinthianism, Docetism, and such, but there's really actually no hard evidence of that. It's it's kind of more speculation. It could be possible. 
But there is a question that's much more important than who these people are. The question is where these people came from. That is a real important question. Speaking about the Antichrist, John writes in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. These Antichrists were hiding in plain sight. Today, false teachers may be sitting next to you, looking very pious and knowing all the hymns. But decades earlier, the Apostle Paul warns the Ephesians Ephesians, uh, elders in Acts 20. He says, I know that after my my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from them. Well, years later, Paul's warning has become a reality uh, for the church at Ephesus. The danger of being deceived by cults and false religions, I think, really takes a backseat to the dangers of wolves prowling around uh, among God's sheep. You don't see them coming. I think we see the cults coming and we see false religions coming, but those arising from our own members, we often just don't see them coming. So God raises up teachers in the church to guard, guard the flock against such attacks. In fact, Paul writes that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. John makes it clear that the incarnation is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. He's telling his readers and us that if you believe these false teachers, that you have failed this test. In fact, you are not a child of God. Why does John take such a such a hard stance here? Because Jesus had to be fully God, fully God, in order to accomplish our redemption. He had to be. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians four, four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In this text, unless Jesus was born of woman, we've not been redeemed and we have not been adopted. And we read in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now the word propitiation, I'm glad that's only four times. <laughs> trouble pronouncing that word. But it is the turning away of God's wrath. It is the turning away of God's wrath. In other words, what this passage is saying is that without Jesus taking on our nature, God's wrath and our sins could not be removed. He had to become a man. Well, much of John's letter continues to to explain these three texts. Our test, our our text is really uh, falls under that category of a test of obedience. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So let's turn there now.
in these three verses, it is rather hard to miss the main uh, 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 the main theme of this passage because the word world is mentioned six times in our text. And so I, I just have three simple uh, uh, outlines, uh, headings, I should say. The definition of the world, the desires of the world, and the destination of the world. Well, there are several different nuances uh, to the word world. Uh, I don't want to watch your eyes glaze over, so I'm just going to go with two general descriptions. Uh, the world to love and the world to forsake. So there are ways in which this loving this world is is good, is good. It, it is this world that God commands us to love. When God created the world and everything in it, he said that it was very good. And this included man as well as the entire universe, even after the fall. The, the beauty and splendor of God's creation is still breathtaking. Uh, maybe more so in October than November. But uh, what, what breathtaking, those, those changing of, of the leaves. People drive for miles to go out in the country or to go out in the Grand Canyon or, or to go out in that beach and watch that sunrise and sunset. It's, there's just something about God's creation still. So King David marvels at a creation that still declares the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim uh, the work of his hands. Though marred by sin, Paul can still say in Romans 1 that the creation clearly reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. We marvel at a beauty, that, uh, at a world uh, creation that's been cursed by sin. It's been cursed by sin. Imagine the beauty of an earth that is free from the effects of sin. Are you looking forward to that world? I, 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 day by day, I'm looking for, more forward to that world. Though man enters this fallen world marred and cursed by sin, he still retains God's image. Our pastor quoted this verse a, a while back, Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The heinousness of murder is that the, an image bearer of God has been destroyed. Probably not going to hear a judge say something like that in a courtroom, but that's the real heinousness of murder. So we've killed somebody who's killed an image bearer of God. Well, even after the fall, there's the world that God loves. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, we think of that common grace love in, in Matthew 5.45. For he makes his sun uh, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And we're reminded of the second great commandment. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. What's the best way that we can love our neighbors? Well... God's love for the world could not be any greater than the offering of his son. And our love for the world could not be any greater uh, than offering the, the son that God has given. 
So our love for the world could not be any greater than that. I don't know what the second best way to love our neighbor might be, but I'm going to think it's a distant second. Whatever it is. So there will come that day, of course, when God's common grace is is going to cease. It will be no more. But up in that time, we continue to do as Jesus told us to seek and to save the lost. Well, that's a brief description of the world that God commands us to love. Now let's look at the world that God commands us not to love, the world to forsake. And that world may be best described in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in these three verses, we see the world, the flesh, and the devil controlling an unbelieving world as it once controlled us. And again, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, we read, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Like Ephesians, we see Satan's stranglehold on a world that's perishing in their sins. This passage in 2 Corinthians also speaks of God's sovereign grace in saving us. How did we overcome Satan's grip? How how were we released from that, that prison house of sin that we lived in? Well, Paul gives that answer two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that passage. I love that passage. One day God spoke into our hearts and said, let there be light. There was light. And there was light. Isn't that amazing? He just said, let there be light. And everything changed. Everything changed. As our sovereign God spoke creation into existence, it is by that same fiat that he created spiritual life in our dead souls. Satan's power that kept us blind was immediately destroyed. It was only then we began to live lives that were are pleasing to God. Well, that depressing picture that Paul painted in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is followed by the next two verses, glorious verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see the spiritual resurrection in those those two verses? Dead in sin, alive in Christ. That's a spiritual resurrection that took place. And so John Stock comments on these two uh, different worlds. He said, viewed as people, the world must be loved, viewed as an evil system organized under the dominion of Satan, and not God, it is not to be loved. 
So now we go from the definition of the world to the desires of the world. Verse 15, John begins this warning by saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. Well, what exactly are these things that we are not to love? Well, we could probably write a very long list of what those things are, uh, but we're not going to do that. Uh, my understanding, my understanding of things, having studied this passage, I put it this way. The things not to love are the sinful enticements of this fallen world through the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These enticements are desired and obtained. Well, under the heading the desires of the world, we begin with the desires of the flesh because that's exactly where John begins with the desires of the flesh. What is the flesh? What exactly is the flesh? What is John referring to? So we're going to look at three ways uh, that the Bible describes flesh. Created flesh, corrupted flesh, and conflicting flesh. I tried to make those memorable like so you never ever forget that. But <laughs> and, and so before... As said before, when God created the flesh from Adam and Eve, and along with all creation, he said that it was very good. And so Jesus Jesus himself had a body of flesh, yet was without sin. And when Christ returns, we will be clothed uh, with flesh that is imperishable and also uh, without sin. And so, you know, Gnosticism teaches that, that flesh and material matter is, is evil and spirit is good. Well, the Bible certainly speaks a, a different way about flesh than Gnosticism. So, created flesh is certainly not the flesh that John is warning us about. So we turn to, cre- uh, to corrupted flesh. So, sp- Paul speaks of man's sinful nature we see that clearly in Romans uh, chapter 8 verse 3 he says for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh sinful flesh flesh that was once pronounced to be very good by God is now being described as sinful flesh well, Paul goes on to describe the results of this sinful, corrupted flesh in, in that same chapter, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In this passage, Paul lists three characteristics of what it means to be in the flesh. Before our spiritual birth, we were in the flesh. And so we were hostile to God. We did not submit to God's law. And we did not please God. Of course, the opposite of being in the flesh is to be, is to be in the spirit. In fact, Paul makes that distinction uh, in verse 9. He says, you, who, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you have been born of the Spirit, you belong to God. And if that person is in the flesh, you don't belong to God, and you want nothing to do with God or God's Son. Uh, 
I think three or four times in this in this sermon, I kind of revert back to my younger days because whatever could be taught wrong, I think I uh, <laughs> I was taught that. So we can learn uh, a person can learn the hard way by way of negation, I guess you would call that. Well, way back in the seventies, when I was in my twenties, I was taught that a true child of God could be in the spirit or in the flesh, depending upon one's performance. And it just doesn't match with what Paul is saying here. And so thankfully, that's not what he teaches. In our most disappointing day as a child of God, we are always and still in the Spirit and will always be in the Spirit. So this sinful flesh is indeed what John has in mind. This is, this is what we are warned against, the desires of this sinful flesh. And so that brings us to conflicting flesh. Conflicting flesh is that daily conflict that the believer has with remaining indwelling sin. Paul speaks of this ongoing battle in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. Interesting, he ends up, they keep you from doing the things that you want. You know, commentators, well, it, it keeps you from, from going into the sin, or it keeps you from, from doing the things of God. You know, which one is it? And I, I think a lot of commentators answer, the answer is yes. <laughs> it's both, it's both. So Paul bemoans his own fierce battle with what he calls the law of sin. It's a wonderful little book of 77 pages by Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within, in which he, I don't know how he did it with 77 pages, but he distills the teachings of John Owen in those 77 uh, pages. But it's a wonderful, wonderful book about the battle that goes on within. It's called The Enemy Within. And that's exactly what it is. And Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 21 through 20, 24. He says, so I find, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Four times in that short passage, he talks about the law of sin that's dwelling in him. This law of sin that's causing Paul such turmoil is not happening because he's in a spiritual slump. He's not having a bad day. He's not backslidden. Notice the law of sin is active when Paul wants to do right. When he wants to do right. He wants to have his best day. When you have his best day, there's the law of sin right there. It's right there. On my very best day, that law of sin is always pulling away. 
That law of sin is right there with Paul. It's pulling him away from God and away from doing the good that he wants to do. And that's true of all believers. That is true. The law is, is like gravity. It's always working. It's always working. And so uh, it's always pulling us el- elsewhere. You, you want to read God's word? Well, the law of sin, say, well, maybe later. I'm kind of busy right now. You know, it's always pulling us away from God. You want to pray? Well, that remaining indwelling sin tells you maybe maybe it's better just to take a nap. Yeah. It's never wanting us to do the will of God. So whatever good thing you want to do, the law of sin is fighting us tooth and nail. And that's sometimes we wonder why 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 have I sinned last week? Why did I do this? Why did I do that? The law of sin is, is at work. It's at work within us. Now, that's not to excuse an unwillingness to do what is right. That's not, that's not an excuse. God gives us all we need to succeed. Read in 2, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. But the law of sin reminds us that there is an enemy within that never rests, and neither should we. We have that tendency to think of men uh, too highly, too highly of, of, of men like the Apostle Paul. In fact, some have even believed that when, when Paul was talking here in Romans 7, uh, that he was speaking about his past life, or perhaps as a, a new Christian, or even one who was unconverted. But Paul speaks in the present tense. He's talking about what's going on in his life right now. It's been said that the more godly a person becomes, the more ungodly they know themselves to be. And some of the most holy men in Scripture fell apart when they encountered the thrice holy God. Though not perfect, the life and faith of Job was exceptional. And yet, Job ends with this painful confession. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You ever felt that way? The holiest men, uh, men of God have felt that way. The holy man Isaiah beheld Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory, seated on his throne. He listened as the angels called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response was just really much like that of Job's. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fifty years ago, I was reading the King James Bible, so I still have, I still have, you know, verses like Psalm 23 that I retain. They're so, so beautiful in the King James, and I really like what the King James says. Uh, instead of our ESV. <laughs> he says, Woe is me. I am undone. I am undone. That's a real picture, isn't it? It's a picture of Isaiah coming apart at the seams. Thread by thread. He is seeing the, the thrice holy God 
and he is becoming undone. Now, I, I don't know if this is true today, but in my younger day, uh, a person might be described as having it together, or that person is really together. However, I, however Isaiah thought himself to be, however together, he now saw himself as becoming undone. He was not a together person anymore. David is described as a man after God's own heart, yet he committed sins that we would never imagine that somebody who, 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 who was a man after God's own heart would ever commit those kinds of sins. Now, and, and we think of what really happened, too, is, is that he held on to that, those sins for almost a year, according to some commentators. A whole year that he held on to those sins, uh, that was the murder and the adultery and the deception that he had. So, I'm going to revert back again to my early days. As a Christian, it was common to downplay or underestimate the Christian's struggle with sin. In fact, it was almost a sin to struggle with sin. Yeah. It was about, it was all about victory. And it was all about overcoming. And those are important words in Scripture because we do have victory. We do, we do overcome. Uh, but a confessions of a fierce battle with sin were often met with admonitions to just, got to have more faith, brother. You know, in other words, you shouldn't be struggling with sin. It's just not. You just, it's kind of a perfectionist type of thing. Or, or we heard the ever popular, and you probably still hear that today. You just need to let go and let God. That's your problem. You shouldn't be struggling with sin. You know, and actually, I, I, James from, uh, from a large uh, correction center there, I, I asked him, I said, James, uh, have you ever heard that expression, uh, let go and let God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we had a long talk after that. But, so I guess that's still uh, going around. But, you know, if that simply means rely on God's strength and not yours, then that would be absolutely biblical. But that saying implied taking a passive stance in our battle against sin. There's no passivity in our battle against sin. We somehow, and we're supposed to, according to this, and somehow in some mystical, magical way, kind of, kind of move out of Jesus' way so he has lots of room you know, to fight our battles, battles for us. So, but it's, it's not Jesus. You know, those, that's not the way to describe that the Bible describes our battle with, with sin. It is not Jesus who puts on the whole armor of God. That is something that you and I do. We go out to battle and we fight in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we do. So whether we are skipping along the mountaintops or we are laying face down in the valley of despair, the law of sin is right there with us. It never sleeps or takes a vacation. The devil looks for an opportune time. The law of sin is 24-7. But we do have one who never rests. We have a great high priest, priest who always lives to intercede for us. The one who promises never to leave or forsake us. We have one whose throne of grace 
is also 24-7. This fallen world that John warns us about is the battleground for that war that will never cease or subside until the return of Christ. And, and if we underestimate that seriousness, we underestimate that battle, uh, we can really set ourselves up for defeat because that battle is, is happening right now and it is ongoing even in our own lives. So it's also important to know what's at stake in John's warning. What is at stake in John's warning? It's not about a smaller mansion. It's not about a loss of heavenly rewards or, or, or blessings here on earth. For those who persist in loving this present world, world, John concludes verse 15 with these frightening words. The love of the Father is not in him. That should grab our attention. That should cause us to sit up straight and listen. If we're loving this world, we're in danger. We're in danger of the love of the Father not being in us. And so James minces no words in James 4.4. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Boy, does that grab our attention. John's sober warning calls us to ask ourselves, where is it that our allegiance lay? What is the reason for living? What is that driving force and motivation that we have for all of our thoughts and our words and our deeds? So now we move on to the desires of the eyes that John talks about. Well, long before those eye-popping visual images were were created in order to uh, lighten our bank accounts, uh, John made this, uh, Job made this promise in Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes, why then should I look upon a young woman? In Psalm 119.37, we read, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Well, we know that marketers use the eye gate and the ear gate to suggest the absolute necessity of obtaining whatever that they are selling, right? Those alluring images suggest that if you had what's being sold here, you too would experience the same euphoria that these smiling, happy people are enjoying that you're watching. It's powerful. These images are very powerful. Marketers give rise to the hope that the next purchase will be the one that fills that empty void in that person's life. It reminds me of that woman, uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She hoped her next husband would be what was missing in her life. Just, just that one. All the others, they didn't make it, but I'm looking for that one. And it, it's going to change everything. Well, that just, that's, a, that's an illusion, isn't it? So, so Augustine came, came to know that there is something missing in people's lives and that it was God himself. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it, it rests in you. Of course, the greatest marketing genius ever was Satan himself. In fact, Genesis describes him as crafty. He knew Eve's eye gate was the way to lead her into temptation. Mankind's fall into sin started with these five words. 
So when the woman saw, that was the first domino. When the woman saw, she saw, she lusted, she partook, and she sinned. Think about that. Think about that domino effect in in King David's wandering eyes. He's supposed to be off to, off in battle with his soldiers. Instead, he's he's wandering on the top of his palace rooftop, and then his eyes begin to wander, and then he wandered from God for up to a, a whole year. Access to the sinful things of this world. Uh, they just seem unlimited. I mean, back in the 70s when I was a young man, I just, we couldn't imagine the kinds of access to evil and to sin that we have in this world. It is amazing. It's often just a mouse clip or a finger tap away to any sin that, that a person could desire. And so we need, as, I, as I'm making out this sermon, we need so desperately to pray for our young for our young people. I mean, not just young adults, not just teenagers, adolescents, babies, babies that are on the way. Uh, pray that they would not be overtaken by the enticements and allurements of this world because they are so strong. They are so strong. Satan deceived Eve by telling her God was keeping something from her for her enjoying something that she would enjoy that was good and that was beautiful, something that was rewarding. Young people are particularly vulnerable to that lie, to that lie. So the Apostle Paul now brings us to the pride of life. My. My timing is, is off. I have much more things to say than I'm going to be able to, to do that. Oh, anyway. The goal of a proud heart, of course, uh, is to think highly of self and to look down on others, much like the, uh, uh, the Pharisee in, in uh, uh, looking down on that tax collector in, in Jesus' parable. You know, the pride of life, uh, when we talk about possessions, the pride of life really says, this is what I have. In fact, especially, look at what I have, look what you don't have. You know, it's saying, it's, it's the boasting, the, the pride of life, the things that I have. Uh, but of course, there's more to that than that. And the proud man says, I don't need God. We read about that in Psalm, uh, Psalm 10, verses 4 through 6. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet uh, adversity. The pride of life is really the norm for this fallen world. It's just absolutely normal. Uh, In fact, uh, it's even considered to be a virtue. Paul tells us why we have no grounds for boasting ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who sees anything different in you? Uh, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Pride in Christians has a devastating effect on the church. 
The proud heart is a boastful, self-sufficient heart. The thing is, is once pride begins to take over a Christian's, uh, Christian's heart, thoughts about God and thoughts about people begin to shrink. There's that, there's that inward focus that leaves no room for thoughts about God or for God's people. There's little desire to stir one another up for, to love and good works or encouraging one another daily, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. Paul, Paul counters this proud thinking in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul goes on to say that, that Christ humbling himself is our example of what humility is. Christ taking on human nature. That's our prime example of humility. So many here are familiar with Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This haughty spirit has, the, has been the ruling of many Christians, many Christian leaders, many Christian ministries. I think we're all very aware of that. There's a certain arrogant, haughty pride that says, I can put myself in harm's way because I am such a strong Christian. I can put myself in harm's way. After all, people tell me what a, a wonderful man of God I am and how they look up to me. How could I ever fall? How could I ever fall? And so they put themselves in situations that are fraught with peril, peril and then they wonder, what went wrong? I just don't understand it. Of course, this kind of perilous pride isn't reserved for church leaders. Paul makes no exceptions when he warns the church at Corinth. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Job asks this rhetorical question. Can a man take fire in his bosom in his clothes and not be burned? Do you put yourself in harm's way? Do you put yourself in harm's way? Do you allow your eyes to behold images that could possibly tempt you? Do you see how close you can come to the edge of the cliff without falling off? Or do you see how far back away from danger that you can be? Of course, we're not monks. We're not living a cloistered life. Paul reminds us, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since since you would need to go out of the world. So we live in the world. There's just things that we cannot avoid seeing and, and such. But letting our light shine really does no good if we were hiding that under a bushel. So we can't live a cloistered life. And lastly, uh, and lastly, we look at the definition, uh, or excuse me, the destination of the world. And this is really where the Apostle John is leading us. This is the apex of what he's talking about in this verse 17. And what I want to do now is I have, I have much more to say, and I'm going to hold that over until the second service, because... Uh, there, there are just things that we, we need to hear. 
uh, with John finishing this. And so I'm going to leave us off with that, and then we'll continue on that and maybe start the next uh, sermon as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just we just thank you, uh, Lord, that you've given us your word, and you give warnings in your word, and we're thankful for those war- warnings because it, it shows that you love for us, your children, you care for us, you don't want us to be uh, entering into those areas of danger that can end up, Lord, in our destruction. We thank you for uh, helping us, Lord, by your spirit and by your teaching, uh, Lord, to, to not love this present evil age. Lord, open our eyes to this thing and, and Lord, convict us of, of the sin of loving this world. Thank you, God. Be with us now as we fellowship with one another and and uh, as iron sharpens iron, Lord, uh, may we have that, uh, that privilege in doing so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.